0: We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. One, two, three, and... So come on, people, come on. Come on, people, who come, 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 come on, people, come on. Ooh, yeah. Come on people, come on, come on people, come on people, come on, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. People get ready for the train to Jordan, picking up passengers calls to call the key open the doors and board them but there's hope for all among those love the most
1: oh i wish i could sing like natalie you know people get ready there's a train to jordan but but i can tell you a little bit today about What happens when you get to Jordan? You know, we cross over Jordan into the promised land, sort of what the song's about, into heaven. Death is what's necessary before we go into the afterlife. And so I want to talk to you today about getting ready for five minutes after you die. Now, fear of death, they say, is the biggest fear that humans can have. And, uh, you know, some comedians try and joke about it to sort of lighten it up a bit for us. Uh, one said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. You know, Will Rogers said it this way. He says, when I die, I want to die like my grandfather who died peacefully in his sleep, not screaming like all the other passengers in the car he was driving, you know. But listen, we can try and lighten it up, but it doesn't change the reality and the finality. So what's going to happen to you and me five minutes after we die because the stats on death are quite impressive. One out of every one person dies. It's gonna happen for every one of us. How can we be ready for the train to Jordan? How how can we be ready for five minutes after we die? You know, do we just breathe our last and then cease to exist? Or, as one religion says, do we just reincarnate into another life form? And if we do better, we're finally released from karma into a state of nothingness where we're just in nirvana? Have you ever talked to someone who has been through that, that can come back from that kind of state and say, yeah, you, you keep at it and you, you, you'll end up in this life form. Or another religion that basically says you don't know until you die. It's the will of God and you don't know till you die whether you're going to be rewarded or punished, but you can do certain things that may result in more pleasurable <laughs> rewards when you get... Have you ever talked to someone who has been there that has validated that religion. And I talk to Christians at Christian funerals where they say, and, and they're trying and comfort themselves with the words, you know, oh, so-and-so just became an angel. Sometimes I know the person, I know they were not a good candidate for angels. Angeldom. <laughs> but anyway, you know what they're saying? They're trying to comfort themselves. Not a time for me to correct them, but where in the Bible does it say that a human being, when they die, becomes an angel? It doesn't say. Listen, I'm going to go with what Jesus says about this one. Because Jesus, watch this, entered death and came out of it and rose again. Let's let him say it in his words I am the living one. I was dead. Jesus is speaking to the apostle John now, and he introduces himself as, I'm the living one, I was dead. He went into death and came back. And now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death. And Hades, he holds the keys, and he wants to open up death into an afterlife for anyone who will believe in him. He who believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. And... Oh, his followers went from, remember, hiding in that room in Jerusalem after Jesus died, but when they saw Jesus risen from the dead, it changed everything. They weren't afraid of death. They weren't afraid of of politicians who would try and persecute them. They just went out and and brought the good news. So much so that when you read an official report that was written to Caesar uh, Hadrianus, In the year 125 A.D., so think of 125, so Jesus died around, what, 30, 30, 33? So these people that are being reported on were the children of the parents' generation who saw Jesus risen from the dead. And so it's a great report if you're sort of a history buff or interested in this, 125, Aristides is the name of the man who did the report. Here it is here. A great, I'm just giving you one quote from the report, okay, about how Christians died. They were, you know, the Roman Empire, there was such a fear of death. It was a mystical experience. You tried to appease the gods and hopefully got a better deal in the afterlife. So many religions at the time went that route. And and then here's these Christians. And if any righteous man among them, these Christians, passes from the world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God. And they escort his body as if he were setting out from one place to another near. Where did they get that powerful confidence from? Right in the face of death. Well, Jesus had told the parents' generation, and the good news, the gospel, was passed on to them. and, And the parents had seen Jesus raised from the dead and heard his teaching how he's going to take them to his father's house when they die. And He's going to prepare a place for them. Jesus said it'll be a place of trust and safety and purpose and joy and peace forever and beauty. He told the thief dying beside him on the cross, remember, it'll be paradise. And so when Jesus is about to go to the cross, you just see a change in his teachings. We're coming into the end of this Jesus project We've been in the Gospel of Luke all 2020, has it ever been relevant to our times? And then Jesus prepares his followers for when he's gone. He says, my Holy Spirit's going to come, but I also want to help you understand how to invest for the afterlife, invest for the kingdom of God. And so one of the parables from the Gospel of Luke that is basically a people get ready parable, is in Luke 16. And, and notice the, we're going to read it in a moment, but look at the differences, five differences between the two main characters. It's the one about the rich man and Lazarus. And, and the rich man, what's his clothing? He's splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen. Whereas the, the poor man, Lazarus, covered with sores. Food, Jesus said, in this story, we'll see it, Everything he wanted, the rich man had. The poor guy, scraps from the rich man's table. Shelter, the rich man has this huge gated estate. The poor guy, he's outside the gate with the scavenger dogs. When it comes to his soul, the rich guy, he's so filled with self. The poor guy, he longed for life. What about their identity? The rich man is called the rich man. Lazarus is given a name. Why would Jesus, in the story he told, give the poor guy a name, but not even give the rich guy a name? Just before we have communion, we're going to see the answer to that. Is it ever special? What an encouragement it's going to be for you. Let's read the story, all right? Just relax. Just listen to the story that Jesus tells. He said, there was a rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Not a pretty picture. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son... Remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing, so now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least in Lazarus to my father's home for I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now in this story, do you see it? Jesus is telling us there's three ways to be ready for five minutes after we die. Here's the first one. Be ready to experience what your heart longed for on earth. What your heart longed for. Be ready to experience what your heart longed for on earth. What did the rich man's heart long for? To put it in one word, self. Selfishness characterized him. He lived for himself. There's no space for God or for anyone who couldn't do something for him. So in the afterlife, watch this, what did he get? An extension of himself, just more self. Notice the requests he makes in the afterlife. It's still about himself saying, Abraham, can I get you to get Lazarus to run an errand for me? (laughs) No interest in God or heaven, no regret, no remorse, no interest in mercy or justice or love. All these interests, even in the afterlife, it's basically, what can I get out of this? How can I get out of this? Torment. And Jesus does a word play here in the story. He says, you know, you had. And he uses the word elios, which is mercy or pity in the story. And uh, he's basically saying, you're requesting mercy even though you haven't shown mercy. You know, Jesus says, you know, forgive others or your heavenly father won't be able to forgive you because we don't have a space in us to receive God's forgiveness if we're not giving it to someone else. the same with mercy. You don't give mercy to people. It's not something that you want or value. So you end up in the afterlife and of course you're not gonna have something that you didn't think was even worth having in this life. And then gate. Jesus in his story uses the word gate because this man just barricaded Everyone that wanted something from him out, he barricaded all of his selfishness in. And Jesus says, You want a gate? Here's a super gate. It's a chasm. It's a chasm that you just can't even get across in the afterlife. And then, but he does say, Brothers, right? Send someone to my brothers. Send Lazarus to my brothers. So you start to see a glimmer of hope. You think, oh, good. At least the rich guy's finally concerned for someone other than himself. Until you look under the hood. You look a little deeper and you see that the request that he makes regarding his brothers is what? That they'll be able to be right with God? No. So they won't end up in this place. The rich dude just, all he cares about is an escape from hell. His motivation is again selfishness. About 20 years ago, a number of us in this church were part of a drama outreach called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, hoping it would awaken people to the reality of eternity and how they'll be accountable in this life for what they did. And there's an outcome to it but you know we we the bottom line is when you look back on it scaring the hell out of people does not mean that they're ever going to love Jesus or love God or value what he did or value mercy or, or right relationship with God and doing good for other people you know in other words I want to go to heaven because I want to escape from hell. That could be selfishness. Selfishness could be the motivation. And so it's an important question for us. What would have happened if Jesus had forced the rich man in his story to go to heaven? You know, he would have brought his selfishness with him. That's what he lived for. Wouldn't have been comfortable in a place of selflessness. And you know what he would have done? The rich guy would have infected heaven with with the same selfishness that has messed up life on planet Earth. That's why the Apostle John, when he describes heaven, some of these verses will make sense now. In the last book of the Bible, he talks about heaven, and he says, nothing impure will ever, will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So you just see people that are sort of frozen in their selfishness, And of course, that selfishness can't come in or it'll mess up heaven. It's those that have humbled themselves and said, Jesus, I turn from my selfishness to you, the Lamb of God, who died to take away from my sin, take away what would be the barrier between me and God. And stop me from going to heaven. I want to go into heaven cleansed and as a follower of Jesus. Now, and so you can understand why the Apostle John says, you know, if you're choosing to be selfish with your life, he basically says it this way in that last book of the Bible. He says, let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right, and let the holy person continue to be holy. Notice it's a continuation in the afterlife of who we choose to become on earth. Do you see it? Be ready to experience what your heart really longed for on earth. And then Jesus says, be ready for something else. He says, be ready to be accountable for what you did with what you had what you did with what you had to work with when you're on earth. Because we all have different starting points when it comes to love and our families and uh, financial disparity, injustices of life. We all start out with, with, with uh, such situations that, you know, so, so basically what we did with what we had on earth. Can you imagine? <laughs> the good that the rich guy could have done for people, not just the Lazarus outside his gate, but could have done for people in his generation with his riches that he could have done, like Abraham. And Abraham is in Jesus' story. And Abraham was a rich, rich, rich man. But he was also generous with his riches. You read Genesis. It talks about Abraham tithing on his income, taking a tenth of his income and giving it to people of of faith, his spiritual leadership in Genesis. He he was even generous with that nuisance nephew Lot that he had. Do you have any of those kind of people in your family? And and he was generous. Just like Job in the Old Testament was so rich, and there was none like him in terms of his walk with God. In the New Testament, you have Zacchaeus who was rich. You have Lydia the businesswoman in the fashion industry that financed the uh, the Philippian church the first church in Philippi Greece and so you have rich people but they use their riches as a tool to advance The good news about God to other people and to provide food, clothing, and shelter for those that were in need. And so the point in the story is not about having riches. How many have ever met someone they don't have a whole lot (laughs) and are they ever stingy with what they have? They're not generous and they're so resentful of anyone that has money. And you, you can have rich people that are like that too very stingy and it's all for themselves. That's the dude in Jesus' story. But you can have rich people who are very generous who 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 use what they have to give to others it's not about what we have it's what we did with what we had you have little or a lot you know it's like the The pastor that had a farmer in his congregation and he was out visiting the farmer one day and the farmer was complaining about this complaining about that the unfairnesses of life and the difficulty of his job and he he said you know if i if i had more money then i'd be generous and the pastor said you mean if you had two farms you would sell one and and use those funds to help others and the farmer said you bet i would and then the, the pastor continues, He said, "You mean if you had two burns, you would sell one and use those funds to help other?" Oh yeah, if I had two burns, I would certainly do that. And then the pastor continued. He said, "If you had two pigs, would you sell one and you?" And the farmer interrupted. He said, "Pastor, he says that's not fair. You know I have two pigs. <laughs> you see, we can be generous." with a little and generous with a lot we can have a generous attitude it's not about how much we have it's what we do with what we have and in Jesus parable get ready for this now this is so absolutely precious Jesus is telling his story here how does Jesus have Abraham in his story refer to the rich man? You know, does he have him say, hey, you selfish creep, what are you doing requesting something of Lazarus? Leave him alone. Haven't you bugged him enough in this? You, you were sort of negligent of him in, in your life. No, no, no. Listen to the word. Abraham says to the rich man, after he makes this selfish request, he says, son, son, why would Jesus have Abraham call this selfish rich guy son? Because Jesus wanted that rich guy in heaven with him. He, he, he still loves him as much as he loved Lazarus. You see, some people will say, well, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? He doesn't. If people go to hell, it's because they, they have proven that they have no heart or longing for anything Just just their own way, their own thinking, their own beliefs. Think of all the ways that God puts roadblocks in our pathway to get us to turn to Him instead of going to an afterlife without Him. You know, first of all, creation, right? Creation. It, It makes known the glory of God. And then, not only creation, but our conscience, where we have a sense of, right and wrong. The rich man, by the way, he, he would have had lots of religious reasons for his conscience to be activated because one of the big tenets of the religion Judaism that he was part of was to care for the widow and the orphan and the poor. And so he, he just just got used to saying, ah, I, I'm entitled and they're not, or I don't know how he justified it, but, but he, he, he just bypassed his conscience. Spiritual longing is another way. That's why there's so many religions in the world. People just reaching out. I know there's a God out there. How do, I, how do I reach him? How do I make connection? And some people say, yeah, but some of them never get to, they have religion, but they never hear about a savior named Jesus. They don't know about Jesus. How is God going to judge them? Listen, it's what they did with what they had. What did they do with the light they did have revealed? And it's amazing how many stories that you hear how when someone really wants to know the truth or wants to know God, he sends someone there across their pathway or reveals himself even supernaturally. It's amazing when there's that longing for God. And then the knowledge of Scripture. Whatever people know of Scripture, they, if they just turn away from what they know in Scripture, well, it's like the brothers of the rich man. Remember Abraham said they have the law and the prophets. Yeah, but if someone rises from the dead, then they're going to listen to them because of that supernatural miracle. And, and, and Jesus has Abraham saying in the story, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You know, if we block out God every step of the way, we, we get to a place where so, Jesus risen from the dead, we don't even check that out. We don't even, we aren't even open to that because we've already poo-pooed the whole spiritual longing and we just pushed that aside. Listen, if someone dies and is in hell five minutes later, it's not something God did, it's in spite of what God did. Jesus died, rose from the dead. I'm sharing the good news now along with people all across the planet who have been transformed by Jesus and if someone, listen, if someone if someone spends their whole lifetime telling God to hush up, how can he then force them to spend eternity with a God they have repeatedly proven they have absolutely no interest in? Each of us is accountable for what we did with the amount of revelation of God that we had. And he'll be just and fair. He, he knows our hearts. He knows the longing of our hearts. And, and, and Jesus says this in the last book of the Bible, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done, what we did with what we had. And then third, Jesus says, be ready. Be ready Listen, be ready for Jesus to make all wrongs right. How many can say, I can be ready for that? Listen, we're ready to answer that question. Why did Jesus in his story give a name to the poor man, Lazarus, but he didn't give a name to the rich guy? I love the insight that Pastor Timothy Keller shares. He says this, he says, the rich man is his money it's what he lives for. Who he is, is his money. That's been the whole basis of his identity. Now that he's dead, what he lived for no longer exists. So there's no more him left. Wow. And then Lazarus, Jesus gives the poor man a name. He doesn't do that in any of the parables. This is the only story Jesus tells where he gives the person a name. It's always the older brother, the wise manager, the the late shopping bridesmaid, you know. just But but he calls him Lazarus. He gives him identity, (laughs) value, personhood. Why does Jesus reserve name-giving to the most overlooked, stepped-on, walk-by reject who lives with scavenger dogs licking his sore-stricken body? Listen, and not only does he give him a name, watch when he dies outside that gate, just uh, bypass piece of rubbish for most people. When he dies, scavenger dogs are replaced by an angel escort. A diet of dog food is replaced by banquet food. He's no longer quarantined alone in aloneness. Now he's sitting beside the big guy, Abraham himself, in heaven. Why does Jesus do that? Because God's always done that. He looks beyond what other people see. He looks beyond the outward appearance and he looks for your heart, my heart. What's in there? Is there a longing for him? Is, is, there, is there a heart for him? He, he gives a, a name and this, this, is, this is something that has helped me during this COVID time when I hear about the de- How many found you can almost get numb to how many people are dying around the world, in Canada, in Ontario. In some cases, half of them are seniors who who family can't even be with them in their last moments on earth. No one's there with them. And so just this picture of what Jesus does for Lazarus has helped me out so much when I realized that if if they die without longing for God, do you see what happened to Lazarus? They may be They may die alone and and destitute, but like Lazarus, God is there to take them into his presence forever. You know, this helps me understand, because I have had people that have been physically abused and emotionally damaged come and talk to me over the years, and they're still, amidst all they've gone through, there's still this longing for God and I am able to see it from the heart of Jesus telling this story here that he will say to those people, you know, whatever has happened to you, however other people have treated you, I will rescue you, and I love you, and I value you. You know, we see people in our culture today, how many know someone that has mental illness, and it just traps them from doing what their heart wants to do. And and they could do so much good, but they're just trapped by this mental illness. And I I see Jesus coming to those people saying, I love you. And I see the person that's trapped inside that mental illness, and I will rescue you. And there's coming a day where I will make all the, the wrongs right. Oh, and then people that are disabled physically and people walk by them and they become known only for their disability or they're in poverty and people don't even see them. You know, why don't you do this? And they don't understand. Listen, Jesus will never bypass you, dear one. However isolated and lonely you are even during this COVID season, Jesus says, I see you. I know you by name. And one day I am going to present you before my father, Father Faultless. That means there'll be none of this damage, none of this brokenness, none of the results of sin in your life. I'll present you faultless before my Father as my loved one. Oh, I'm looking forward to five minutes after I die. I'm looking forward to five billion years after I die because we're going to be in the presence of Jesus forever. All because of what Jesus did for us on the cross you know, or just prepare yourself with bread and the cup. Now listen, if you have been with me in this teaching and are saying, you know, I understand the good news now. I'm going to turn away from my selfishness and I'm going to turn to live for Jesus. And Pastor Keith, if you'll pray with me, I'm ready to say yes to the love and the gift of forgiveness and the gift of the eternal life that Jesus offers me. I mean this in my heart. This is, what I, this is what I long for. Just pray with me. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me so much that you died on the cross so I could be rid of everything that messes me up. I receive your gift of forgiveness today. Forgive me of all my sins And keep forgiving me as I follow you. And at the end of my life, thank you, you'll give me the gift of eternal life. I'll go right into your presence. Five minutes after I die, thank you for that, Lord. One second after I die, I'll be with you, Jesus.
0: Thank you.